In my experience, when I finish the first draft of a novel, a lot of things have changed at the end. So, you know, my characters have become maybe different characters than they were in the beginning. The ending might not be exactly what I had expected. The movement of the novel, you know, I might realize, wow, that first section was just completely unnecessary or that first two or three chapters. So I think that that for me, it's always been really important to, to even write out all the scenes and look at each scene and make sure that it's contributing to the movement of the novel. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Sean Smucker has published five novels in the last five years, most recently, The Weight of Memory. He's also co-written some 30 books. Sean and his wife, Miley Silva, coach, teach, and encourage other writers in a creative community they call The Stories Between Us. They host a podcast of the same name. In this episode, Sean Smucker and I discuss revision, point of view, and when it's okay for writers to stop pushing and take a break. Sean Smucker, I'm so happy to have you back on the Habit Podcast. It's been a Jonathan, while. It's great to be here. Thanks, man. Um, you have been so productive over the last few years. How, how many novels have you published in the last few years? Um, this last summer was my fifth. And I think it was five in five years. I yeah. think so. Yeah. And were you just sort of cranking those out in the course of about five years, or or is this a backlog of things you've done along for a long time? The first two were a little bit of a backlog. So the day the angels fell, the edge of over there, the two YA books that mm-hmm. I wrote, I had written those previously, and I had even self-published the first one. So those uh-huh. two were kind of sitting around. And then when I signed with a publishing house, they wanted to do those two first. So that gave me you know, a year or two to kind of jump onto book three, and then which wasn't related to the first two. The last two felt a little bit time crunched, you know, because by at that point, I was, I was at a year, I guess I had a year to write each one. So that, uh-huh. that started to feel a little bit tight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know you, you, I don't know if you're still doing this. Do you still, is co-writing still a, a your kind of day job? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, co-writing, um, I've, I've co-written maybe 30 books in uh-huh. the last 10, 10, 15 years. Uh-huh. Um, I've done a little of that and I'd like to hear you talk about, I mean, that can burn up a lot of creative energy. Um, yeah. How, how were you, how do you do that kind of creative work and then have time to, uh, or have energy or space or whatever to, to write fiction, write your own that's stuff. A great, yeah. That's a great question. Maybe I don't cause I feel kind of burnt out right now. Um, yeah. I, I mean, through the years, it was usually, um, a, I'd be working on, well, first of all, let me say this. The books that I co-write were mostly memoirs uh-huh. and they were mostly stories being told to me. So mm-hmm. it didn't require a lot of, of, um, the same sorts of creativity that maybe writing a novel requires, mm-hmm. you know, where you're coming up with everything from scratch, you're thinking through characters, narrative arcs, plots. Uh, you know, I wasn't doing all that for other people. So mm-hmm. I would, it, it, the main energy that w- that's required for those sorts of projects is really listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was probably what, what wore me out more than necessarily the actual writing, you know, was uh-huh. just, listening to someone for two or three hours at a time, 
taking notes and then, and then transcribing that recording and using that to write their life story. Um, so I, I, I always felt like I had, I always felt like I had something to bring energy wise when it came to the fiction part Mm -hmm. that, that felt different to me somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Cause I, I found it hard to do both. Yeah. Um, but I'm also, I have a feeling I'm not as energetic as you are as a writer anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, the thing with co-writing that I loved and that I still love is uh, when, I, when I'm helping folks write like a memoir, for example, just that sense that you get from them that you are helping them to do something they could never do, or they would never have the time to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the finished product that you have that they're super proud of. I mean, that's, that's such a wonderful feeling to, to, to know that I helped someone um, bring their story into the world, you know, a story mm-hmm. that, that probably wouldn't have come into the world. And then I do a lot of family histories as well, like for, for older folks and, and again, it's just so rewarding when their kids read the book and they come to me and they say, I never knew that. Like, I never knew yeah. that my dad did this or I never knew that he went through this. Or So it's very rewarding, that, that, uh-huh. that kind of work. And I think that helps to make up for it. But also the process is such that, that you move from one thing to the next pretty quickly. So, you know, for, for six or eight weeks, I'm gathering information. And then for a couple of weeks, I'm transcribing. And then for a couple of months, I'm writing. And so it, 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 it's not like just constantly writing all the time every day for somebody else. Yeah. Um, now your co-writing work, are you sometimes, so it sounds like sometimes you're, you have sort of private clients who are writing family histories for their family. Um, are you also doing work for where publishers call you and say, we've got this manuscript that, or we've got this, we need some help getting this thing done. You're doing that too, right? Yeah. I've done both. Yeah. Yeah. So you may or may not want to comment on this and you, I'm not going to require that you comment on it. There were times where I, so I, I, I completely get that writing a family history for a family, incredibly rewarding work. Um, and some of the some of the co-writing I did, I loved it because here are people who have great things to say and don't necessarily. I mean, I, I knew, you know, I worked with a couple of people who they could utter brilliant paragraphs, like things I could never speak. And yet when they tried to write it, it was almost like there was some disconnect between their mouth and their hand. And it was really rewarding to say you just say what you just said and I'll write it down for you. You know, this, you've got this great things to say. Um, and I love helping them put their important ideas on paper. And then I also had some books that I thought the world doesn't need this book. You know, that was more a publisher uh, trying to, you know, cash in on a, on a trend or, you know, finding some celebrity, minor celebrity, right? I'm, I'm not writing, you know, I never did anything for major celebrities, but, you know, sort of C-list celebrities maybe. And, you know, and kind of felt like, I'm not sure this is a good use of our energies and, and resources. Yes. Anything to say about that? <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, that I would say while in very much in the majority of the projects that I've done, there there have been a couple where I felt that way. Mm-hmm. And and you know, there there was even online for a little while, there was kind of a firestorm about uh, the ethics around co-writing and ghostwriting. And um, so I think there are a lot of, there's certainly a lot of questions um, around, around that whole thing. I, for me, I, I've, I've always tried to be a part of projects where it was open, like Mm -hmm. that this person has a co-writer and at least mentioned in the acknowledgements and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I've had a few ghostwriting jobs where I wasn't mentioned at all, which mm-hmm. doesn't bother me, but I know that some readers are, are bothered by that when they, when they find out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, it is an, it is kind of a, it can be an interesting path to walk as a writer. There are a lot, a lot of questions like that. Yeah. Cause you know, at, at one level, the skill you, you bring is you can put together good sentences. And it's rewarding to put together good sentences. And then at another level, there's, I've got something to say, which is completely divorced or, or may is probably completely divorced from making a living as a co-writer. Um, may or may not be. I mean, I, I know there were times where I was able to, to um, help, help somebody think through what they wanted to say and, and say, have you considered the, you know, the following? And uh, it felt like I contributed something there. Um, but, but I, you know, as you said, it's, it, it can be ethically complicated, the co-writing. Yeah. I and, would say that for me, um, co-writing and ghostwriting was probably one of the best disciplines. It served me very well as a writer uh, uh-huh. to have to make yeah. a living doing that because mm-hmm. I, I really learned a lot about deadlines. I learned mm-hmm. a lot about how I work mm-hmm. as a writer. Um, and I think part of the reason that I can be or that I have been so prolific over the last five years is because for the six or seven years before that, you know, I was co-writing four or five books a year. And so you learn pretty quickly, oh, I can write a book. Like I can yeah. write a book yeah. length project and this is how I do it. Like this is how it works mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned, okay, a thousand words a day, a thousand words a day is doable when I'm in the middle of a project um, and that means a novel in four or five months, you know, so yeah. or the first draft. So I, I did learn so much. I wrote so many words that I, I it was a huge service to me as a writer, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know what you mean. It, I don't know if you've ever written uh, advertising copy or brochure, you know, sort of work for a marketing firm. But man that's several deadlines a day sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much about, you know, uh, producing just, just, mm. you know, and not just producing sentences, but producing ideas. You know, you, you'd think I can't possibly come up with any more ideas and then you have to, and you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, uh, whenever I teach writing, I, I, you know, I try to inculcate the idea. There's always more where that, came from whatever idea you just had you didn't just you know it's you don't have a finite number of ideas and you now you have one fewer than you did right the more (laughs) more ideas you generate the more ideas you generate yeah yeah i like that or receive or whatever the right verb is for what you do with ideas Mm. right yeah yeah um well so you have helped other writers get their um get their work out there 
through co-writing or get their ideas out there through co-writing. You also um, help other writers through coaching and would you say teaching? Um, how do you, yeah. I know you, I know you do yeah. you, some, some of what you do, you call coaching. Do you tell me about that? Yeah. So Miley and I, my wife, Miley and I started a podcast a few years ago, a few years ago called the stories between us. The link and, to which will be in the show description. Yeah. And when we started that, it was really because we're both writers and we were having these conversations all the time about writing just around the house in the kitchen, you know, at night. And we thought, you know what, these have been really helpful for us to work mm-hmm. through things together. Maybe we should just record these and put them out there. And so we've done that. It's not like the world's most famous podcast, um, <laughs> but we just, we love it. You know, we have a good time mm-hmm. together talking about those things. And, and so the courses that we started to offer were, were really just another step in that direction. You know, we thought, well, we provide each other with so much uh, feedback and encouragement Mm-hmm. And what if we opened that up to some other folks, you know, mm-hmm. and we kind of went on a journey together. So the first course that we did was last year, we started in March and that was a nine month novel. So we, we charted out like a nine month um, intensive where we have zoom meetings and we do weekly teaching videos and, you know, lots of encouragement. And we had, uh, I think we've had about 14 people this year who finished their novel. They started in March, ended in, around November. Yeah. And that was, that was such a fun, super rewarding experience to see, especially because there were so many of those writers who, you know, naturally hit hiccups along the way where they're like, I just, I don't think I can do this anymore. You know, something changed at work or family Uh dynamics Mm -hmm. or, and, and to be there right beside someone and say, okay, well, hold on a second. Like, let's, let's adjust your plan. Let's change Mm -hmm. some things this way. Uh, and then, and to be able to walk people through that and see finished novels was really cool. So we, we're going to do that again this coming year. We, we started a six month memoir class, uh, uh-huh. in October with students. And so that's been going really well. Oh, good. And then we have a revision class that we're starting in January, which is a shorter, it's probably about 12 to 14 weeks. And it's really for anybody who has a, a finished first draft, but isn't uh-huh. sure where to go with of a novel. So that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's been, it's been really fun for us to be able to do that together. Um, it's also kind of lightened my load as far as, um, the number of projects I need to pick up as a co-writer. So uh-huh. yeah, it's been nice to kind of mix that up because I've been co-writing for, you know, 12 years now. So, um, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's just, it's been a good, a good change. So when you, when you teach or, you know, you said you got instructional videos, and I don't know how many of the, I, I know you this class hasn't started yet or this, this group or, or whatever the right word is. Um, so I don't know how many of these videos you have created. Um, but what's the kind of thing you tell somebody, like when you talk to somebody about revision, I'd love to talk about revision for a little while. Mm, um, yeah. So what are some principles that you inculcate? If you're willing I think, to, I mean, I, I don't want you to give away everything. Yeah, know. yeah. No, hey, our <laughs> syllabus is online, so anybody can go look at it if they want. Um, I think the first thing that I've realized about myself when it comes to revision is that I want to have a really good handle on what I've created. You know, I, I don't think that I get to the end of a first draft and always completely understand uh, what I've done or what I was trying to do. And so the first three or four weeks of the revision course is is really just encouraging the students to make sure you know your characters, Mm -hmm. uh, make sure you're aware of the structure of your story. 
make sure that you know you've you've chosen the point of view so let's be consistent with that mm-hmm. um you know it's really just sort of going through a checklist of basics initially mm-hmm. and saying let's get a let's get a really good grasp on what we have here in front of us we know it's not good we know it's actually it's probably pretty awful yeah um but let's see what we've got and and then at that point we dive into uh, critique groups and giving and receiving feedback. Uh, because I think that once you have a good handle on what you have, you've created your first draft, it can be really hard to get outside of yourself and revisit that work mm-hmm. in a way that, that allows you to make the needed correction. So that's why we, we really want to emphasize the critique side of things and um, getting feedback and then and then sort of moving through that 12 weeks of taking a chunk of the novel and then another chunk and then another chunk. So yeah, um, that's sort of the process that we're going to go through. Tell me about this idea of not really knowing what you like finishing a draft and still not knowing what you, what you have. That, well, in my experience, when I finished the first draft of the novel, a lot of things have changed at the end. So, mm-hmm. you know, my characters have become maybe different characters than they were in the beginning. Um, the ending might not be exactly what I had expected. The movement of the novel, you know, I, I might realize, wow, that first section was just completely unnecessary or that uh-huh. first two or three chapters. So I think that that for me, it's always been really important to, to even write out all the scenes um, and and look at each scene and make sure that it's contributing to the movement of the novel. Also, when I start novels, I don't, I tend not to outline too much. Um, so I don't always know exactly what the main question is or what the character's mm-hmm. main desire is, but I think mm-hmm. by the end of the novel, then I finally do know, okay, well, what this not, what this character actually wanted more than anything else in the world was this. And so then I can go back and look at each scene and say, does that scene contribute to bringing him along that path? Or is that scene now completely irrelevant? Um, yeah. And so that I think that's what I'm talking about when I talk about taking stock of what you have now in front of you. Yeah. I think it's so important in revision to to distinguish between you know to say this chapter this section is unnecessary to the final product doesn't mean it was unnecessary to get there. You know, mm. and and it's you you maybe had to write that explore that in order to get to the point where you really didn't know what you were, you were saying. And I think, you know, uh, I think one of the painful things about revision is, is that I, you know, not if you can't separate those things, if, if, if you, because it was important for you as a, as the writer to write that chapter, it's hard to, to see maybe it's not, you know, important, necessary, do the final work, yeah. but um, you know there there are literary concerns and there are emotional concerns <laughs> in the revision <laughs> process. Yeah, when I um, so my first book, the day the angels fell, about a year and a half ago, was uh, optioned by a small production company, and so I have no idea if anything will ever come of it or not. But I was asked to take a shot at writing the screenplay, and uh-huh. so I I I did that and proceeded to realize, uh, I mean, this was a book that I had written, you know, four years ago, proceeded to realize that, wow, my plot was not very tight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. It was alarmingly easy to remove 
scenes hmm. uh, that I had not really considered before. And it's something that's really stuck in my mind when it comes to storytelling now. And I think my novels will be much better going forward for that, for, uh-huh. for seeing how, um, yeah, just how, how easy it can be to remove scenes if you're not, if you're not really aware of, of the story itself and, and not paying attention to, to what has happened in the story when you finish the first draft. Yeah, yeah. Now, on the other hand, one difference between a novel and a screenplay is that you do have the luxury to maybe do some things that aren't quite as necessary. I mean, you know, that. Yes. Because you're not paying a film crew, right? And you're not hiring <laughs> right. actors. And, you, know, you don't have to limit it to an hour and a half of. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. 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 That's worth noting, too. Um, lest one, you know, beat oneself up for. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, you know, I also realized, Jonathan, that I'm. When, when you dedicate your life or, you know, a chunk of your life to writing, as I have for the last 10 to 12 years, and, and I was very interested even long before that, but I feel like the last decade has been very much a concentrated effort. I realize how much I've learned in that time mm-hmm. and how much I've improved from where yeah. I was in the beginning to where I am now. And also I'm realizing that if I would ever want to be good at writing screenplays, it would take a lot of time, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and, and I don't know if I'm at that point in my life right now where I want to be a novice at something else huh. quite yet. Maybe, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe down the road, I'll, I'll, I'll feel that, that burning desire to, to become an, a poet or, um, you know, a screenwriter, but I, I'm really happy right now with where I am as a novelist and, and my trajectory and how much I've learned. And I think I just want to continue to focus on that. I realized that after I finished writing the screenplay. Yeah. Um, did, did the production company see your screenplay and then say, thanks, we'll go find some else who writes screenplays too? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. No, I, you know, I so admire people who, who pick up new, skills late in life and yet it terrifies me the, the the thought of writing poems that somebody else might i mean okay i'm not gonna write poems anybody else is gonna, it's gonna see it. the thought yeah, of writing yeah. poems period is a little alarming to me yeah uh, i mean i can write little funny you know narrative funny poems but but uh, the kind of poetry that i really really admire uh, yeah well i <clears throat> I think as you get deeper and deeper into any particular, well, I'll say this for me anyway, as I've gone deeper into fiction and as I've, as I've drilled down, you know, like this past year, I've, I've really been trying to learn a lot about um, close third person. So uh, I read how fiction works by James Wood yeah. and he has an excellent, you know, oh, that's excellent section, on, section on, on that. That's, that's amazing. That's the, yeah. I, I just, Love that I had no, that I, I, he, he totally for me explained that concept in a way that I just, I had never really wrapped my arms around. And so, you know, when you learn something that's super in depth in a discipline that you're working on, yeah, it can be a little bit overwhelming for me to think, wow, there are things like that about screenwriting that I would have to learn, you know, as I would sure. make my way into that. Uh, and, and so it does, it, it does put me off a little bit, I think of, of going down a different road at this point. Yeah. 
Um, by the way, um, have you read uh, George Saunders' book, A Swim in the Pond? A Swim in a Pond? A Swim in the Pond in the Rain? I, I might be Is that the one articles. with the Russian short stories? Yeah. Yeah. It is on my nightstand right now. It's like yeah. next in line, but I haven't, I haven't read well, it. Well, it needs to get off the nightstand and into your <laughs> hands. Okay. And into your brain. Yeah, it is so yeah. good. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned um, the, the James Wood book. Is it, it's a How Fiction Works. Is that the name of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that book is, is so good, but especially the parts you just talked about. Mm-hmm. It. Um, I, I didn't learn as much from the, from the other parts of the book. I don't know if that's because I wasn't quite ready to learn whatever those, those parts of the book had to say, but, but yeah. that part just, just blew me away. So, yeah. 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 I had that book with me in Tennessee actually. And, uh, I was with some relatives at a, at a hotel and I was reading beside the pool. This was like three or four years ago. And I stood up and went to grab something out of the pool and just threw the book into the water, totally inadvertently. And, and uh, so I didn't pick it up again for a couple of years. And, I, and then when I read it just recently, that close third person was, um, wow, that just, yeah, it, it yeah. really, really spoke. And especially, I think, because I, that's what I, I, I enjoy writing in, in that third person, but I could never really, I couldn't wrap my my arms around what I was trying to do with that yeah. almost a blending of first person and third person. Like mm-hmm. you're so inside that third person narrator's head, yeah. but the way that he explained it and broke it down and showed it, you know, in Graham green and some of the other examples, I, I, it was, it was really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember um, your, um, your most recent novel, um, uh, the, the weight of memory. Is that close third or is that first person? That's first person. Well, it's it's first and it's almost second because the the first person narrator is talking to his granddaughter uh-huh. and sort of retelling these stories. Um, so yeah. it, it's a little bit of a mix. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the the reason I couldn't double check, as I told you before, is because my dog literally ate that book. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, but you were doing something interesting with point of view there, right? We have this, this narrator who's, we don't know if he's, well, he's losing some capacity, some mental capacity. And, but but it's kind of hard to know when he's confused, when he's not confused. And then there's some magical realism mixed in there. Um, And I don't, you got to, that's not a question. That's just, (laughs) yeah, no. Well, you know, I, the narrative voice in that came to me because I just love, I love Gilead so much. Mm-hmm. I love Gilead. And what I, what I've always really enjoyed about that book is Marilyn Robinson's way of bringing us into this super intimate relationship between the older father and his very young son. And as I, read through it over and over again, her book, and just tried to figure out what she was doing there. I realized that part of that intimacy, I think, comes out of the second person. It's like you're, mm-hmm. it's like you're overhearing, you know, a conversation that maybe you're not really sure, should I be listening in on this? Mm-hmm. Like, this is really personal, and this is, this is um, really intimate. And so, I didn't actually write 
the weight of memory that way first. I started it off as a close third and mm -hmm. Miley suggested that I just play around a little bit in first person. And then as I started to do that, I realized, oh, what if I had the narrator actually writing to his um, to his granddaughter? Because he's he is under a lot of stress. Like you, mm -hmm. you mentioned his sort of, um, he's a little bit unreliable because he's just received a terminal diagnosis and his granddaughter is very eccentric and quirky and you don't always really know how much to believe about the stories that she tells. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I did try and create a little bit of a unknowing in that, in that way. So did, did I have it wrong? Was, was the narrator himself relatively reliable, but he was relaying where he was uh, interacting with stories that were less reliable. Is, it, is that, that's, is that a yeah, fair I way mean, that's, it? That's probably a little bit more of a fair way to put it. Although, you know, because he is the primary narrator, he's telling you the story, but he's, he's sort of alongside of you in that uh, uncertainty. So he's, yeah. he's like, well, this is what she told me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not really, I'm not really sure what to think of it. Yeah. All right. Well, forgive me. As I said, my dog ate my book. So I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, um, but but one thing that that makes me think about and that I remember thinking about when I was reading that book is that we think of a story being a plot and that the interest in a story comes from, you know, the sequence of events. We think of that as being the main interest in a story. But we need to not forget that you get a whole bone. I mean, I love the way the complexity that we just described there. We've got a man telling a story who's had a terminal diagnosis, he's overwrought emotionally, and then he's interacting with these stories that we don't know what to make of them. That whole point of view question is as interesting as the mm -hmm. sequence of events in the plot. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I love that stuff. You know, that, that is mm -hmm. so, um, and when I teach writing, I, you know, I, I try to speak in terms of, or I teach, you know, fiction writing. Um, you don't drive yourself crazy trying to come up with another, you know, unexpected, brilliant plot twist. I mean, if it comes to you, great, but you, you need to sort of put those other layers in place of, of, you know, narration, character, these kinds of things um, that are, um, I won't say they're more important than plot, but they're more important than jazzing up the plot with new plot twists and subplots and all that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, every time I start a novel, I tell myself I'm going to make, this is going to be the simplest novel I've ever written. I want to start in the beginning mm. and just tell the story straightforward to the end. And it just never ends up being that way. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if, um, yeah, I'm not sure why I do like trying different things. I do like trying different things. Yeah. And, and I, I think I would get bored if I was continually writing the same sorts of stories with the same sorts of plots and the same sorts of characters. Um, so it is, it is some of that just comes out of my desire to play and to have fun yeah. and to try something different. Yeah. Somebody in, in uh, actually more than one person on Goodreads said, I never know what to expect from Sean Smucker. You know, when I pick up a new Sean Smucker novel, I never know what to expect. And they meant it in the best possible sense, right? But, you know, it might be magical realism. It might not be. It might be, you know, who knows what I'm going to get when I, when I uh, read this, this book. Um, which, you know, literary agents 
don't approve of that kind of behavior. <laughs> they do not. <laughs> <laughs> do you get scolded? Do, uh, do you get scolded by your your agent? Well, you know, I I my my initial agent who who got me into the publishing world with the day the angels fell, the edge of over there and light from distant stars. She moved on to other, other things. And so I had to find a new agent. And one of the first conversations I had with my new agent a a couple of years ago was uh, she was very interested in what my focus was going to be. Are you going to write YA or Mm -hmm. are you going to write, you know, adult fiction or, Mm -hmm. um, she said, obviously, it's a free country. You can write whatever you want, um, but it might behoove you to, uh, you know, to pick a track yeah. and stay in it. Yeah. And you said, thanks for the we'll free see. country part. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, can we talk about Marilyn Roberts for just a minute? Yeah, your, please. I would love to. You know, speaking of point of view, her her Gilead tetralogy is such a study in point of view, right? The same, I mean, roughly the same story. Some, a lot of overlap in plot between those four books, yeah. yeah. And and all the action, I mean, all the goody comes from here's this story, the way it looks from John Ames's point of view, and here's how it looks from Jack Bolton's point of view, and here's how it looks from Lila's point of view, and here's how it looks from Glory's point of view. And it's both, you know, point of view is both what I can literally see with my eyeballs from that, that point of view character. You know, there are things, literally things that John Ames can see that glory can't see and vice versa. But also when we've seen the same thing, how do we, how does that point of view character interpret what they've seen? And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you talk to people who read Gilead first and their view of who John Ames is compared to the people who read um, Glory, uh, uh, Home, mm. the, the, yeah. the Glory story. Yeah. What they think about John Ames is really interesting to think about, you know, the difference in whose eyeballs you're seeing this, this action, this mostly, especially those two books, so much overlap in, in the action from two different points of view. I think it's just a, so instructive in what point of view is for. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real practical issue as well, Jonathan, you know, I, with the family histories that I've written Mm. and this comes up a lot in my novels, this idea of our unreliable memory. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I have this story that I tell a lot. I wrote a, I helped a 94 year old woman write her, basically her biography and she had a very strong memory of when she was in her early thirties. So this was from 60 years before her husband had died. Um, He was out on a boat, had a stroke. They brought him in um, on a little sort of um, like a floating dock, Mm -hmm. loaded him into the ambulance. And then she got in the ambulance and drove away. And she said on her way to that, she had dropped her son off at baseball practice. Her son was sitting there in the room with me he was around 70. Mm-hmm. And so he would have been about 10 at the time. And he said, no, mom, that's not how it happened. I was, I was right there. I was standing right beside you when mm-hmm. they brought dad in. I would never forget that. Like that's one, yeah. of the, one of the most powerful memories I have in my life. And she said, absolutely not. You were not there. I specifically remember 
dropping you off and then driving down and then realizing what had happened. And, and they went on for 10 or 15 minutes back and forth, trying to prove to one another that theirs was the correct memory. And, mm-hmm. you know, that has had such a huge impact on the way that I hear stories, the way that mm-hmm. I hear memories, the way that I write books, um, because I, I do enjoy tapping into that that sort of unknowable nature of the past, especially once you get beyond a decade or two decades or three decades. Um, You know, we do so many mental gymnastics, I think, to, to mold our memories in ways that suit us in ways Mm -hmm. that, um, that prop up our view of the world and, Mm -hmm. you know, what we think the world is or should be like. And it's pretty remarkable when you're on the outside of that and you see how, how two people are so certain of this mm-hmm. memory that they have that are completely conflicting and could never actually coexist in the real world. Uh, that particular example, it does, that doesn't sound like two people who had an agenda, right? They just had different, no, yeah. they didn't have good reasons for remembering that way. They just, and, and then layer on, the, on top of that, as you said, the way we massage memories to suit ourselves mm-hmm. and the way we yeah. think things need to be. Um, you know, said everybody grows up in a different family. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> the kids you get the kids in a room and they what they remember about that, the same house they lived in. It sounds mm-hmm. like they lived in different houses sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's why I enjoyed Marilyn, Marilyn Robinson's book so much. You know, when you get those different perspectives, um, I don't know that she included, you know, con- any conflicting stories or memories, but, but just to have that, to have that luxury as a reader to mm-hmm. say, okay, well, this is how John Ames told the story. And then, yeah. oh, wow, this is actually, you know, a sideways view of that with, with additional information and, uh-huh. and relationships and all that. I think <clears throat> in, in those two books, the uh, home and, and, um, and Gilead, um, and I can't speak as I, I can't, I, I didn't, look as carefully with Jack, the most recent one, but when they are just showing, really just showing what they saw and heard, they are very much in agreement. It's their interpretation. Mm. Yes. Right. You know, yes. and now, mm. as you said, there's also the layer of the, 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 the things people just think they're just showing and not interpreting mm. comes into conflict, but it felt like Marilyn Robinson was very careful to say, we're going to show the same events Mm-hmm. And some of the, I know a, a few of the bits of dialogue are word for word between the two books. Mm-hmm. That's really And cool. yet yeah. the experience of those events is so different in those two books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I've got to ask you the uh, standard question here for the, for the conclusion. And that is who are the writers who make you want to write Sean? Yeah. I recently started listening to, a book called The Brothers K by David James Duncan. Mm -hmm. I love that book. I've read it many times and I've been feeling a little bit stuck in my writing. And I know that whenever I read or listen to that book, it just makes me want to write. There's Mm. something about, there's something about his, um, his first person in there, the, Mm -hmm. the narrator that, that almost awakens stories in me. It just makes me want to, makes me want to do that. I think the the difficult part about that is when you, when you have writers who write so beautifully and they make you want to write, mm-hmm. then 
then when I actually write, my first drafts just look so horrible because I'm comparing them to you know, <laughs> these books that I love. <laughs> yeah. That have gone through who knows how many rounds of editing. And, exactly. Yeah. 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 But so, so he's one um, definitely. Um, uh, oh. All the Light We Cannot See, Anthony oh, yeah. Doerr. I love that yeah. book. Um, I've read it a couple of times the whole way through, but then other times I just pick it up and read, mm-hmm. you know, short sections. And um, Have you read his new that, book yet? I have not. I I've heard either. good things about it, but I haven't. Yeah, I haven't read it. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, what, I love what he does. Um, you've alluded a couple of times to feeling a little stuck and burnt out. Um, you got any more to say about that? Stuck well, it's been, it's interesting, you know, because we're walking all these writers through nine month novel, writing their first draft and such a, such an important part of getting that first draft written is consistency, you know, getting into some kind of a rhythm that, mm-hmm. that you can, that you can hold yourself accountable to. And yet I, I find myself in this place of not, not necessarily wanting to write or knowing that there are things that I need to do to finish this current book that I've written and just not finding the time to do it. And so I've been really torn between this, this idea of, you know, when, when do we need to give ourselves some space and some time to, to just kind of live life and take in things and not be writing and be okay with that. Uh And when is it, when is it the right time to just push yourself and maybe be a little bit hard on yourself and say, no, come on now, you got to, you know, you need to finish this thing. You got to get it, get it written, get, get your butt in the chair. So that's been, I don't know. I've just kind of been thinking through that. I'm not sure that I've come up with any answers. I, something that Miley said that I thought was wise is that if you've already created a writing routine and a rhythm in your life, then it's, it's a little bit, it's a little, it makes a little bit more sense to give yourself a break Mm-hmm. But if you're at that point in your writing journey where you've never really been consistent, you've never really had that kind of a of a writing schedule, mm-hmm. then maybe you do need to be a little bit harder on yourself just so that you can create that, so that you have it to fall yeah. back on. I don't know. Yeah. That's what do you think? Uh, I think I'm the wrong person to ask. Uh, you know, I mean, I... I um, I've never had a ton of success with being, you know, being consistent. Like I write to deadlines when I've got a deadline, I figure out a way to do it. And, um, and which frankly quit working at one point. Right. I just kind of, I mean, I've got it. I got to where I couldn't even write to deadlines. Couldn't write. Um, and, um, uh, it's, I feel like so much of the writing life is a question of knowing, and you've already alluded to this in, in what ways do I need to be hard on myself, you know, not, not go easy on myself. What, what ways do I need to get, cut myself some slack? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause if you keep pushing, it's, you know, you got to leave room for grace in the writing, in the process, right? It's, it's, you do reach a point of diminishing returns with, with, you know, if I just put forth more effort, I mean, I can put forth more effort and write better sentences, but I but there's a limit to how much effort I can put into having something to say. 
And you know, yeah. you have to, you you do have to receive. You have to you have to remind yourself, I woke up today in a world I didn't make. Mm-hmm. And the extent to which I can receive that um will give me something to to say. Uh now on the other hand, I'm I'm also not I'm just not very good at being hard on myself in, in the right ways. I mean in terms of discipline or, or, or whatever. Um, but I do think um, rest and Sabbath is, is a, just a, a part of the, the writing, an un, unavoidable part of the writing process. So you're just going to end up producing stuff that the world doesn't need. You know, mm-hmm. If it's, if it's yeah. not coming out of what you've received. Yeah. Yeah. That's not exactly advice though. That's not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a general principle that I still don't know how to apply. Yeah. You know, I was in a really good routine for the last five or six years where I would, I would spend most of January, February, March digging into my first draft and getting that written usually by April or May. And then I'd spend, you know, a couple of months away from it, send it to my editor. I would hear back from her late in the summer, do a round of revisions, send it back and then do a final round of revisions at the end of the year. And it it felt like a, it felt seasonal. It yeah. felt, it like felt, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it just really, it, it seemed like a, a good way forward and it's, it's worked for me. I've written, um, you know, not, not all published, but six novels now. And yeah, I think I've, I've just this winter hit a stuckness that I haven't felt before. Like I, I have one more round of revisions that I need to do on this novel. Um, and I, I, I cannot, find it. I just can't find it. So that's kind of interesting. And I guess that's why I'm thinking about it a lot because it's, I'm I'm kind of in the middle of it right now. I had never until this minute thought about, you know, we, we, we talk about our daily routines, but, but what if there was a church calendar for Mm. the writer? I mean, you know, this, Mm. this idea of of seasonal, we're used to, I said we're used to people from certain Traditions are used to the idea of it's Lent and then it's or, you know, then it's Easter, then it's ordinary. Or, uh, okay, I'm now revealing how little I know about the church calendar, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's ordinary time. There's Advent. There's you know, I guess Pentecost. I'm I'm done. I'm not I'm not going to continue to <laughs> try to fake it. Uh, but that's that's really really I'm going to ponder that in my heart. Mm. This. That's a, that's a, maybe you need to write that article, Sean. Mm, yeah. Which may turn into a book, but do <laughs> we'll this. Yeah. If it's only an article, please don't turn it into a book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we've seen a lot of those. Yeah. Right. All right. We better go. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Sean Smucker. I really appreciate you being here on the habit podcast. Yeah, I always enjoy talking with you, Jonathan. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. 
More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.